0: All right, church, go ahead and have a seat. Uh, it is a blessing uh, to pray in this way with you. I think that's one of my favorite things about this church is just these congregational prayer times that we get to have. I remember um, when, when I first said yes to candidating here, and uh, I, I kind of watched uh, the, the recording of the service. And uh, this was when uh, my candidacy got announced, and the church grouped up and prayed for me, uh, it, was, it was humbling. It was absolutely humbling. And it was just further confirmation for, for Rox and I and our family that the Lord was calling us here. And so uh, I am thankful when we get to have these times. I know for some of you it, it may feel awkward and different and stretches you a little bit, but uh, I, I think it's a beautiful thing for us to gather together and verbally pray with one another. It's a, it's a beautiful, good thing. Okay, church, Let's uh, let's dive in to the scriptures, shall we? Well, um, some of you know that I had the privilege of studying abroad in England uh, during my junior year of college. And in particular, I lived in London. And one of my favorite things about living in London was riding the subway and having that as my main form of transportation. Now, in London, they call it the tube because, you know, you got a little train that goes in a tube underground. So it's the tube. And it's a fun place to be. And everywhere on the tube, they have these signs that say, Mind the Gap. Mind the Gap. They also give little announcements whenever the doors open and close of, Mind the Gap. Mind the Gap, except in a nice British accent. And why do they say that? Well, because there's a gap in between the train and the platform. And they don't want you to kind of not be paying attention and step into that gap and get stuck, and then, you know, terrible things would happen. And so they have you Mind the Gap. We, as a people, tend to be careless, and we need to be reminded of the dangers that are around us. Spiritually speaking, we also need to be reminded, not just of the dangers, but also, and in particular, of God's deliverance. We need to mind God's deliverance. We need to remember our passage today is ultimately all about Remembering, remembering God's deliverance. We've seen in the book of Esther this grand story of deliverance, and even though God's name isn't mentioned, it's clear through the story that it is God who is working. It's God who is working. He's working through human agents, but He is at work. And last week we saw His deliverance come His unexpected, expected deliverance. It arrives, God's people are saved. So what left, what's left in the story? What's left to tell? Well, in the section we get today, it's it's not an exciting section. You know, Esther has been full of these crazy highs and low lows, full of irony and humor. Well, we kind of have run out of those things, and now we get this kind of boring, just these statements about, and the Jews began to celebrate this thing called uh, Purim or Purim. And it's like, okay, well, what do I do with this? This isn't exciting. Where's, where's the adventure in the book? What do I do with it? Not only that, but we as Christians don't even celebrate Purim anymore. So, <clears throat> what do I do with this passage? If all Scripture is profitable, if all Scripture is God-breathed, what do I do with this? How is it supposed to train me in righteousness when we just look at a holiday that none of us celebrate? What do I do with this? Well, Ultimately, as we're going to see, it teaches us the good of remembering, the fact that we need to remember, the fact that we need to see God's deliverance. We ought to remember His deliverance, and that's why today is called "We Ought to Remember." We ought to remember. Sorry, there's no title in your in your worship order. Talitha's been on vacation, so uh, I didn't have the sermon worked out. You know, Tuesday when she left, so uh, we, we ought to remember. Let me pray, and we will get into the Scriptures. Father, we worship You and thank You that You are good to us. Help us to hear and help us to remember what You have done for us this morning. I pray all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. All right, we are going to be starting in verse or chapter 9, verse 16. This is where we left off last time. It says this, "...now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives." And got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th, that is to fight, and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. So basically, we start out in this section with a little kind of explanation as to why there's two days of celebration well, the people in the, ta- or in the villages, they only fought for one day, so then the next day they celebrated. The people in Susa, remember they got two days. We saw that last week. They got two days to fight, so the day after that, on the 15th, they celebrated. So we see that there are two days of celebration total, starting in verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far obliging them to keep the fourteenth day of the month of Adar and also the fifteenth day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Okay, so Mordecai sees this celebration and he sends this letter obliging them to remember this great reverse that they had seen. Remember, things looked bleak, things were not going well, and then God reverses all of that and instead they are delivered and they see triumph or they defeat their enemies. They triumph over their enemies. Verse 23, so the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hammedatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. So here we basically get a recap of the whole book. And there again, even in this recap, there is an emphasis on reversal. Haman had plotted this one thing, but this plot was turned back against, or on top of his head. Remember last week we saw that God uses the plans of of his enemies against him. And this is big. This is one of these praise be to God moments. Just even reading this, we should say, yes, isn't God good? Oh, what a deliverance he has brought. Now we're going to see... Therefore, so because of this great deliverance, verse 26, Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term poor. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse against the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. So then, again, we see, therefore because of what happened, they have obliged themselves and all future generations. It's not just them, but all future generations to keep this remembrance. Now, this obliging of themselves, it's not a command. The word there, "obliged," is is not the same as, you know, hey, thus saith the Lord from on high. It's not a command. Instead, it's, it's this moral language of basically saying, it is good for us to do this. I'm obligated to do this because I ought to do this. It is good and whole. We should keep this festival. Why? Because it is good for us to remember. That's kind of the language that's being used here. It's not, hey, you must do this or face punishment. It's, oh, this is something we need to do because, man, it's good for our souls. All right, verse 29, then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them. And as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting, the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. So again, we see apparently this second letter gets written saying, hey, we need to emphasize the need to remember And this term, obligated, comes up again several times, and we only get one time that the word command even appears, and that's in the very last sentence, the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim. But before this, they had already said, we are obligating ourselves to do this. So that leads us to our first point today, and this isn't in your worship order, so I'll try to leave it up here for a bit. God's people ought to remember their deliverance. Pretty simple. I think it's clear as we walk through the text that that's what God's people were doing. God's people ought to remember their deliverance. We aren't given deliverance, and then we can just say, Ah, well, isn't it great that we're delivered? I wonder how that happened. No! It's good for us to remember how we've been delivered. And the Jews, they were delivered from Haman's plot. They've been saved, rescued from annihilation, total destruction. And that was worth celebrating. But Christian, you and I, we have been delivered from something far better. From eternal damnation. From death. The power of sin. Destruction. We have been given eternal life. We have been truly delivered. The Jews were temporarily delivered. We, as God's chosen people, holy and beloved, a kingdom of priests, We are spiritually delivered. Our deliverance is so much bigger than what happened on the 13th of Adar. We are called to remember our salvation. That leads us to the question, though, of why. Why do we need to remember? I think it's kind of obvious. Yeah, okay, we need to remember, remember, but, but why in particular? Is this something that the Lord commands his people, or at least reminds his people, that they need to remember. Why is that there? I think that's basically our our second point. We're called to remember because we are prone to forget. This is simple. We're called to remember because we're prone to forget. That may feel like kind of one of those, uh, duh moments. Yet we forget this. We tend to think that we are infallible and that we don't forget. But in the text, we see that there is this emphasis on the next generation hearing there's all there's this emphasis on all the future generations they're obligated to do it as well let me go back uh, to verse 28 verse 28 these days should remember be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan province and city so everywhere But then we get back to, again, the future when it says, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews. So, again, never fall, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. There's this threefold emphasis of, hey, look at the future. We all need to continually remember and equip the next generation. We are one generation away from forgetting what God has done think about the book of Judges. One generation is rescued and begins to walk faithfully, but then the next generation arises or is raised up and forgets what God has commanded and they fall away. We don't pass on what has been given to us. So not only Are we as individuals beset with sin, and we live in frail bodies that forget things, but we're also prideful, and so we just, we kind of neglect even thinking that we need to be reminded of something. But we corporately, as a group, fail to readily and rightly equip the next generation. We forget, oh, there is a beautiful deliverance that has been brought to us, and we don't dwell on that. I want to spend some time painting a reality of the current American evangelical church because the current generation is failing the next. And I'm not going to be looking at at what the current generation is doing to to reach the next. I'm not going to look there. I'm going to be looking at what the current generation of U.S. adults believes, okay? Because that's how I can see where we are failing. And I'm going to draw some, uh, some conclusions. Every two years... Uh, The the Lifeway Research and Ligonier Ministries conduct something called the State of Theology Survey. They do this every two years. The last time they did it was 2022, and the results were sobering. I remember reading this last summer and just being shocked. The survey was conducted among thousands of American adults And you can compare and contrast the answers of the general population with those who are evangelical. Now, by evangelical, I don't mean those who identify as evangelical. That's not really fair just to take anybody that says, oh, I'm an evangelical, and then make assumptions about who we are based on that. However, the survey classifies people as evangelicals based on what they answer to some particular questions. So, if someone strongly agrees, you can't even just agree, you have to strongly agree with these four statements, you got classified as an evangelical. Here they are. Number one, the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. Number two, it is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Number three, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. And number four, Only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. Okay? So that's what makes somebody evangelical. Those those sound like pretty good defining parameters for evangelicals. Now, what I want you to see is that people remember some parts of the good news, but they don't remember other vitally important parts of the good news. We don't I'm not going to share this to say shame on us, but I share it to paint the reality that we don't remember well and that we need to do a better job so that we can equip the future generation to celebrate God's deliverance well. The source for all of this, you can can go here, it's thestateoftheology.com, thestateoftheology.com. When you go there, you can even see the answers that Christians should give. It gives scripture verses and say, okay, So-and-so percentage of the people say this, but here's actually what the Bible says. I encourage you to go check it out on your own time. So, I'm going to give you several figures from this, okay? Here's one, that, and these are all ones that I find very concerning. Here's one. 56% of evangelicals, so the majority of evangelicals, agreed that God accepts worship of all religions. 56%. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These are people also that apparently at one point in the survey said, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. Another figure, 43% of evangelicals agreed that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. That's concerning. That's 4 out of 10. 4 out of 10 that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. That's actually closer to 4 out of 9, I think. John one one says, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God." If Jesus isn't God, I don't know how He's covering all of our sins. Another figure, 48%. 48%. So this is almost half, almost half of evangelicals agreed that God changes. The general U.S. population, the figure is only 51%. 48%. Basically, half of evangelicals think that God changes... Paul in Malachi 3.6 says, For I, Yahweh, do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The fact that God doesn't change means that we are delivered. If God changes, then our deliverance is not sure. It is important, vitally important, that Christians believe that God does not change. Another figure, 26%. And sorry, church, if I get upset, <laughs> I'm not upset with you, I'm just upset with these figures because, oh, it pains my heart. It pains me to see these things. As a pastor, it it weighs on me because I think, how can we do a better job as a church? Okay, 26% of evangelicals agreed that the Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. One out of four. 38% of evangelicals agreed that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. And here's a very concerning one 65%, so almost two out of every three, 65% of evangelicals agreed that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. The general population says only 71%. Christians, Christian doctrine at least, says that we are not born innocent, we are guilty. Our first father, Adam, sinned, and we are all sinners because of that, both in action and inheritance. Psalm 51, five says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. If we are not sinful, then we don't need a Savior. The idea that we are born neutral is actually a heresy called Pelagianism that was condemned in the 5th century. The church throughout its history has looked at that and said, that is not true. We are not innocent. We are not neutral. We are guilty. We are people in need of a Savior. Okay, so those are some of the theological truths where we are really wishy-washy. We are struggling. But here's some some of the ethical implications or or kind of responses. I'm going to give you two. 94% of evangelicals agreed that sex outside of traditional marriage is sin. 94%. And, and that's, that's right, by the way. That's, that's a good answer. I'm not, I'm not upset that 94% of the people uh, agreed with that statement. Okay? 91% of evangelicals agreed that abortion is sin. So here we have right ethical responses, yet the theological underpinnings of those are incredibly weak. And it, sh- it, it, it reveals to me that we as a church are passing along, here's what you need to do, but we are failing to pass along, here is who God is and how He has delivered you. Because we have the ethical response right without an understanding of who the God is who has declared these other things over here to be right. And that is a dangerous place to be. The next generation obviously is not going to uphold these ethical considerations over here if the theological foundations on the other side are not there. We're remembering the ethical implications of the gospel, but not key aspects of the gospel itself. In our text today, the Jews were remembering their deliverance, and they were celebrating because of that. Do our children remember and celebrate deliverance? Do we just want them to know Bible stories, Or do we want them to say, man, isn't God amazing? Oh, He's incredible. We need to be reminded of the precious truth of God's deliverance because we're prone to forget. The numbers don't lie. We just forget. We just forget. But here's the good news. In His mercy, God provides avenues for remembering. He doesn't just leave us on our own and say, hey, you ought to remember, good luck but he gives us avenues for remembering. Doesn't slap down a command. Shame on you if you don't do this. But he says, in my love for you, here is one path here and one path here that as you walk down them, my goodness and my mercy, my deliverance, my forgiveness, but also my glory and my majesty, my splendor and my power, you will remember them. So for the last kind of third of the sermon this morning, I want to spend a lot of practical time talking about the how-tos of these avenues of remembering. There's two main ones, two avenues, two paths. One is gathering together, and the other one is reading the Word. Again, that should be, if, you, if you've heard me preach before, it's like this should not be a surprise. We gather together and we spend time in the Word. That is what Christians do. Christians gather together on Sundays, and have ever since Jesus Christ arose. When He rose from the dead, Christians started gathering on Sundays. And you may think, oh, is that a tradition or a holdover from, you know, going to synagogue and gathering together like that? The answer is no. The Sabbath is Saturday. They go to synagogue on Saturday. Christians started gathering on Sunday to remember Christ's resurrection, to remember their deliverance and say, Christ is alive. That means we're alive too, and one day, even though our bodies may be dead, we will be alive as well. We'll be alive with Christ in heaven, and then one day, there'll be a resurrection, and we will be fully alive. And so on Sundays, we gather together to remind each other of how we've been delivered. If we're not gathering together, we are missing out on one of the main primary ways that God calls us to actually remember what He's done. And we do this through the preaching of the Word, you know, so that, that's a tall task for me. I try to help us remember God's deliverance week after week. But more, imp- not more importantly, but side by side with that, we bless one another by being in one another's lives. We love one another, we exhort, we rebuke, we encourage, we, are, we share our gifts with one another, which we can't do if we're not with one another. Two verses I want to share with you, one from Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Basically, we build each other up together together. We've each been gifted to speak the truth, to grow together, to help one another be who we ought to be. Then in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 7, it says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, you, church, each one of you, has been given a gift by the Holy Spirit. And you are called to steward it and use it for the body, for the common good. That's not talking about the common good out there. He's talking about in the context of the church. We serve together. We need one another. So I want to take a brief moment to those of you who are watching online. And I plead with you unless you are sick and unable to come or out of town, please come join us. Not so that you can sit here and you know listen to me and sing a few songs and then leave, but because we need you. We need the gift that God has given you. And you need us because you can't experience everybody else in this room when you're at home. So please, if you are able, come join us we want you to be here with us and for those of you who are here today you know sometimes there's that temptation of i'm just going to stay home today cuz it's easy please even if it's hard come be with us we want to be with you we want to be with you okay so we gather together that's the first thing the second thing we read the word we read the word now when we approach the Scriptures. It's easy to come and read this as, oh, I need to do this. God tells me I need to do this. But I want to change our thinking and say, I come and read this because I need it. Not I need to do this, but I need it. This is something that I need to hear from. I need it in my heart. So I want to give you three house when you're reading the Scriptures of how to make it more profitable for you. Because sometimes we read it and we're like, yeah, I I don't know what to do. (laughs) Like, I'm trying to look for what God's saying to me and it's just right over my head. It's hard. It's difficult. What am I supposed to do? So there's three of them. And these are kind of just things to keep in mind as you read. One, know that all the scriptures are about Jesus. Just know that. They're all about Jesus. Jesus. Jesus says in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus says himself, they're all about him. They are all about him. Not in the sense that that every rock is Christ, or like the little boy in Sunday school, the Sunday school teacher said, hey, what's brown, has a bushy tail, eats nuts and lives in trees. The little boy thought for a minute, and he said, well sounds like a squirrel, but I'm in Sunday school class, so I think the answer must be Jesus. So uh, not not that way. It's not that everything is Jesus. But they're all about Jesus, leading to Jesus, speaking of Jesus. Not necessarily in a literal sense, but they are about Him. So that's one thing. Know they're all about Jesus. Secondly, understand how the Bible fits together. Basically, what's the big storyline of the Bible? I was talking with somebody else about this uh, earlier this week. The more I know about the grand storyline of the Scriptures, the easier it is to read about and understand the particular thing that I'm reading. Like, where does this fit? Because if I know where it fits, I understand what it's trying to do. And if I understand what it's trying to do then, then I can understand more about what it's trying to do now in my own life. Uh, some, Some practical books that you can read are God's Big Picture, by Vaughn Roberts, God's Big Picture. Uh, another book, it's a little longer, is called According to Plan by a guy named Graham Goldsworthy. <clears throat> Although he spells it kind of the Scottish way, like Graham, it's G-R-A-E-H-M. So Graham Goldsworthy. Uh, those are two excellent books and they're, they're pretty good reads. Um, so if you're wondering, okay, I'd like to know how the Bible fits together. Those are two excellent books. Okay, thirdly, so one, um, it's all about Jesus. Two, understand how it fits together. And three, read redemptively. Don't read it with, tell me what to do. That's not how we read. Here's I'm going to give you a, kind of an opposite or a bad example. When my parents moved out of their home, uh, they were kind of cleaning house, and I received this children's story Bible, Catherine Marshall's story Bible illustrated by children. This book is garbage, okay? It's terrible. I was reading through it. It's just a bunch of moralistic stories. It's moralistic stories. Every story is to convince children to live a particular way. It's not about God's deliverance. It's not about our sin and need for a Savior. It's just fun stories. Okay, child, this is how they screwed up. Make sure you don't do it. That's awful. But a lot of children's Bibles read that way. And sometimes we can even communicate that. Be like David. He faced Goliath. That's what it says in this little Bible here. But that's not what the story of David and Goliath is like. It's about God rescuing his people through an unlikely shepherd boy. It even says it in the story that David is doing this so that the nations would know that there's a God in Israel. It says it. But our story Bibles don't get that. Uh, one I would recommend uh, to read to your children is the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. It's an excellent, excellent resource. Uh, we have read that to our kids for many, many years. I had to read it once uh, for one of my theology classes. Like th- it was a signed reading, a children's Bible uh, for one of my classes. So uh, I highly recommend that one. So we need to read redemptively. And the way that you do that, I think there's a couple questions that you can ask. One is look for the fallen condition. And by that, I mean what aspect of sin or consequences of sin or just the result of living in a fallen and sinful world, like a natural disaster. What, what of those things do I share with the original audience? That's your fallen condition, it's the sin. But then secondly, look for the redemptive solution. How is God addressing that sin? How is He restoring it? How is He redeeming it? That's the redemptive solution, and that's how we look and read with the lens of Christ. Because if all Scriptures are about Christ, and Christ is redeeming the world, then all the Scriptures are about how God is redeeming. Now, sometimes, if I'm in a passage, to find the redemptive solution, I may have to look elsewhere, which again is why it's helpful to know the big picture and the big story of the Bible. Sometimes, you get a warning, and it's like, where's the redemptive solution in that? The redemptive solution is God loves us enough to warn us. So, after I've looked for the fallen condition, and I've found a redemptive solution, then I ask, how do I respond? In light of those things, who is God calling me to be? What is God calling me to do? I don't start with the do question. I start with my sin and God's salvation. Then I moved to do. And by the way, that's generally how I preach. Hopefully, as you, know, if, if you think about that, even think about this sermon. I, I like, okay, what do we share with the original audience? Well, they forget. They needed to be reminded of their deliverance. How is God redeeming them? How is God redeeming that fallen condition. Well, God has implemented a way for them to remember this festival of Purim. What should I do? Oh, I need to walk down that path that God has given. So there you go. That's even the sermon. You know, sorry if I've kind of put my cards on the table. So uh, hopefully everything I do isn't a mystery. That's what I would long to do week after week. And church, this is what we need to do with the next generation. We need to teach them to read redemptively. Teach them to read not with what is God telling me to do, but who is God? I want to wrap up Esther in chapter 10 and, and move our eyes specifically to Jesus because there's a, there's a beautiful little tease at the end of the book. So when we think about redemption, I want to, I want to look at this. Esther chapter 10, verse 1. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. That's talking about his power because it's kind of just out of the blue. Verse 2, in all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews, and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Okay, so how does this connect to Christ? Well, there's a little tease some clear language, and it happens back in verse 2, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? That may sound familiar to you, because in the books of kings and chronicles, you get this refrain, are they not written in the books of the kings or the chronicles of the kings of, of Israel or of Judah? And so the author of Esther is kind of cluing his reader in, hey, you remember that there were kings, and that right now we're living without a king? And we need a king. And that Davidic king that was promised is still coming. And Mordecai isn't that king. He's been exalted and raised up. Look how powerful he is. Ahasuerus is super powerful. And and Mordecai is the second in line. But our king is coming. And our king is Jesus. He is that promised king. And so Esther ends with this little bit of hope, looking to that promised end, where a king will come and make all things right king will come and deliver his people. A king is going to come and reverse all things. And If you're here this morning and you don't know that king, I invite you to know him. Knowing him is simple. You see, we, we naturally don't know him. We stand apart from him because of our sin, because of all fa- failures, because of our rejection of him, our rebellion against him. The consequences of that, the wages of that are death. But God, in his mercy, sent that king, Jesus, God himself, the son of God, to die for us on the cross. He lived a perfect life, didn't deserve to die. And he invites us to believe that his death was enough, that his death can cover us. And so perhaps you've sat in you know, churches all your life or this is the first time you've ever come to a church. Jesus invites you to respond and to believe. And this deliverance, this rescue can be yours. It's not just for those of us sitting right here. It's for all who would believe. Will you believe? The celebration can be yours. For the rest of us who do believe, church, I urge you, remember and celebrate. As we've walked through Esther, we have seen God's goodness on display. The question is, will we remember? Because we need Him. Here's our closing statement for the whole thing. Remember the reversal. We were going one way. God stepped in and rescued us, reversing everything. Remember that reversal. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you have reversed all things, that we were running towards death, but you brought us to life, not because of anything we did, but out of your great mercy. Lord, we thank you that you chose us long before we ever moved towards you. We thank you that salvation is your work, that it's your faithfulness and your goodness, We thank you that you invite us to respond, and I pray that that we would remember, because you have invited us to remember as well, that we would be convicted of our sin and that we would long to remember your deliverance day in and day out because we need it. Father, help us in these things. May we be a church that regularly and always celebrates your deliverance. I pray all this in Jesus' delivering name. Amen.